My name is Bert Weisford, and I'm here to talk with Randy Mason about her exciting first novel, Falling Back to One, and about Teaser, my third novel, and the second novel in the Corey Logan trilogy. Congratulations, Randy, on such an ambitious first novel. I'm looking forward to discussing it with you. Thanks. I look forward to talking with you, too. You know, I found your choice of Seattle, you know, very interesting. I mean, obviously, I think, um, you know, as I read the book, uh, it seemed like a very appropriate setting. I know that uh, Seattle has a huge homeless runaway teen population. Um, I was wondering whether there were other considerations for choosing that. I mean, certainly your descriptions were, you know, very detailed. Um, I'm, I wasn't sure. Did you ever live there? Uh, oh, I lived in the- Seattle for many, many years. Oh, okay. So that would explain it because I really felt as though I was there, you know, in their actual places. So, uh, and you know, I, we moved from L.A. when my children were young, and we lived in Seattle for I don't know from it's got to be almost twenty years, both on Bainbridge Island and on Capitol Hill in Seattle. And part of the book you read, Teaser, is the second book in the trilogy, all of which are set in Seattle. And uh-huh. part of the genesis of this for me was my all three of my kids were in schools, and I was on the board of one of the schools, and you know, it was this juxtaposition of private school kids and homeless youth, and that was a theme that is a theme that runs through all three books. Right, and you know, and it's very interesting because such such incredibly different lives and experiences, um, but also the things that uh, will transect both of them. Um, you know, there are so many things in society that it, it really doesn't matter what sector of society you live in. There are certain issues and problems that will invade any sector. Exactly. Exactly. I'm very curious how. You, you know, sort of came to your central character, and I don't mean Sergeant Baker. I mean Mickey. Um, you know, I'm I'm very sort of I guess guarded in terms of talking about uh, how the story came about. So usually, all I do like to say is that, you know, the story was very much you know was a part of me uh, in high school. And, I mean, it was many years before I actually decided to start, you know, putting pen to paper to write it down. Uh, But it really, you know, was a part of me. uh, And, you know, so it it just came out of that. Uh, So there there was no conscious thought really put into this in that sense. Was this a book take a long time to write? Yeah, I mean, I think also in part because I had never written anything before and I had never, um, you know, studied writing or learned how to write or the the craft of writing. And so uh, when I started, and and at this point it was probably over 25 years ago, I essentially was, you know, teaching myself to write by essentially writing scenes out of sequence, I, w- I was just randomly writing scenes just to practice writing and to learn a bit about writing. And then when I felt ready, I went from beginning to end, wrote the story book from beginning to end, and then just countless and countless drafts that I went through. I mean, just, you know, basically self-editing, revising, revising, because I kept learning more and more from both 
observing as I read other people's work, but then also from reading about the craft and the art of writing, how to improve my writing. So, and of course it's a long book. So I just essentially was just go to the end, start over. Now I was focusing on something else and just, you know, kept going and going over years and years and years until I finally decided it was good enough, but it was a very long, long process. Um, and I'm curious, what was the writing process like for you? Because I see also you have a lot of different creative pursuits uh, as well, so it's it's interesting. I produced feature films before mm-hmm. writing, and as a producer, yeah. what I did was work with writers. I worked with great writers, and I was completely taken by surprise by how much they enjoyed working with me. I mean, I I was just thrilled because apparently, you know, I didn't, I never thought of myself as a writer. And, um, you know, I would sit with great screenwriters and work out the stories with them and uh, talk to them about the characters and, you know, how to make this work. And they would come back a second, third, or fourth time. And these are great writers like Andy Lewis, who had written Clute, and Alvin Uh Stargent, who had written, you know, uh, Ordinary People. Anyway, there's a uh, Stuart Stern, who wrote Rebel Without a Cause. I mean, I work with a wonderful bunch of writers. And um, after a while, it occurred to me that I could try this. And I started by writing a screenplay. I wrote a couple of screenplays. And then when the kids got to be a certain age, we really didn't want to be in the movie business. We didn't want to raise our kids in that world. And we moved up to Bainbridge Island and I started writing novels and it was like, it just took my breath away. I mean, when you produce movies, you're doing crisis management all the time. You're simply (laughs) managing other people's problems. And when when you're writing a novel, you're managing your own problems. (laughs) I mean, <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes, it's true. I mean, you're really just writing about what you want to write about, and you know, it may not be conscious all the time, but there's an element of that, and it was such a relief for me. I mean, I just enjoyed it so much. <laughs> That's funny, and yeah. you know, and, it, and it's interesting too. I imagine because obviously you were kind of immersed in the screenwriting, you know, watching other people's their screenwriting, but you know, writing a novel is obviously different. It, it you know, it's a very different type of writing. They're each their own genre of that. So um, that must have been interesting too uh, for you yeah, to kind that's of a good be point shifting focus. Well, and it's something liberating because, you know, when you write a novel, you can go inside people's heads, and that's the one thing you can't right. do in a screenplay. Right. I mean, you, you know, you you train yourself rigorously not to talk about what people are feeling in a screenplay. Right. <laughs> and so I would, you know, and my first drafts, now the first book was uh, – Inside Passage, which was the first in the Corey Logan trilogy, and I would have these long interior monologues. Yes, I, I had to cut them all back. <laughs> right, right. Well, it's interesting too because I think a lot of the writing process, a lot of what you end up doing ultimately is deleting things and pairing things back because it ends up being more powerful that way, but it can be very hard to let go of things, especially if you particularly loved something that you wrote. I think they, they call it something like killing your children or some, something right. like that. Because you <laughs> kind of have to sacrifice them, you know. No, that's it. I, I certainly feel like that. Uh, but I also feel like um, 
good when I've been able to successfully do that. Right. Um, I mean, there's something that, you know, one of the things I've takes me a while, took me a while to understand as a, a writer is that it's much better to show something happening than explain it to people. Right. And as you learn to do that and can do it without drawing attention to it or without beating people over the head with it, um, you feel like uh, the writing is more powerful. At least I do. Yeah, no, I, I definitely agree. I think it touches people more deeply because you're basically drawing them into something so that they can experience it firsthand uh, versus telling them. It, you know, it's kind of like telling somebody uh, how to bake a cake versus letting them bake the cake themselves. <laughs> you know, it's a, it's a much more satisfying experience where it means a lot more to them. Um, I think what's funny is one of the downsides of, of developing the capacity to do that, to show more than uh, tell in writing, is that it, it becomes harder reading some books where they're basically telling things. Yeah, no, it, no I find it more, much, very diff- yeah, difficult to read now. Yeah, no, and that, you know, that's interesting. You know, when I was uh, – it's the same thing with movies. You know, as you get to know how to make movies, uh, it gets uh-huh. harder to watch them. Right. I know what might be fun to talk about a little. One of the things that interested me is I thought that the therapist that you wrote, you know, who, a learner who comes in at the end, was very uh-huh. well written. Oh, and, thank you. Uh, you know, Abe Stein, who uh, is one of the two protagonist in all three of these books is also a therapist uh, right. and I had a lot of fun writing that uh, I wondered how you felt about that yeah well I mean I love I love Dr. Lerner and um, you know I I think that although I, I basically wrote everything much I finished writing this book long before I actually became a therapist myself, but I had been a patient in psychotherapy uh, for so long that, you know, I was able to write all these scenes. Um, So becoming a psychotherapist really didn't alter very much of anything uh, with Dr. Lerner. Um, I think it was was smaller things, whereas a a therapist, I would note that, oh, maybe I wouldn't just end that thread. I I would say something else to the patient. So, you know, little subtle things, but the majority of everything that's in there actually was prior to my becoming a therapist. But I think it's such a rich experience um, having a therapist uh, in a book where you're watching the therapist sort of guide things and interpret things. Uh, I mean, I think it's a very evocative experience for people reading it. Um, and I think people, I, the feedback I've gotten is that people really love that part of the book and they all love Dr. Lerner. And I know that other therapists that have read my book uh, love Dr. Lerner. So it's gratifying to me. Um, and it was a, a wonderful part of the writing was to write that. So um, I'm not sure what you drew on for. Uh, I, I saw that you would actually yourself uh, study psychology. Um, were yeah. you at any point considering becoming a therapist? I um, have always been interested in it. And I, I think one of the things that was sort of the the genesis of 
all three books is this idea that you could take a, a woman who's very capable in the world and you know uh-huh. you don't really know much about i mean it's a, in a way i i suggested that you read inside passage first but i think right. julia was right to suggest teaser because thematically it's closer to what you've written i mean in terms uh-huh. of the, the kids and stuff uh right. but in the genesis here is two completely different kind of people and she sort of she fishes uh, in Alaska, and that's very hard. You know, it's you know, this, you fish every day during the season, and it's dangerous, and it's real outdoor, and you have to be able to sort of negotiate your way through the wilderness, and you know, right. a, a lot of tough stuff. And then I wanted to pair her with a man who could do the same thing with people's emotional lives, but wasn't so able in the world. And, right. And, you know, he's a guy who sideswipes parked cars and is always burning right. holes in his pocket. <laughs> right. <laughs> but Bumps he into is, things and drops. <laughs> uh, I mean, at the beginning of Inside Pass, his very first sequence, she comes to him for an evaluation. She's coming out of prison, and uh-huh. she needs uh, an evaluation in order to get her son back from foster care. And uh-huh. uh, so she comes to see this guy. And, you know, he asks her if it's okay if he smokes his pipe. And she says, listen, there a no-smoking thing. She, he says, yeah, but people ignore it, you know. And so he lights his pipe, he throws <laughs> the match in the wastebasket, and he starts a fire. Oh. <laughs> and she walks out. I mean, that's the very beginning of the book. <laughs> that's funny. That's yeah. But what happens is that she comes to have this wonderful regard for his ability to sort of navigate through people or her emotional life. Right. And uh, he had, I mean, they just make a terrific team. And by the time, the beginning of teaser, they're married. Uh, Right. And the first book is how they get together. And, um, uh, but I've had a wonderful time and the third book is actually more Abe's book. The third book, Minos, is uh, is a lot about him dealing with a very disturbed young girl as a terrible secret. Uh-huh. And right. uh, uh, runaways are getting killed, and she's predicting it, but he can't unlock the code. So, you know, she's talking about ancient Greek mythology, and she's having all uh-huh. these... And he has to simultaneously he has to sort of break the code in term in the therapy, you know, get her right. to a place where she can. Uh, I mean, much the same way as you know you do in your book, you know, mm-hmm. uh, with Doctor Lerner, he has to get her to a comfort right. level where she can allow him to understand what she's trying to say, and uh, right. and. So simultaneously, Corey is trying to solve the murders in the real world, and he, right. the key to it is happening in Abe's office. And uh-huh. to get and together they discover this terrible secret that she's been unable to, you know, bring to consciousness, and that also right. thematically is like what you do. And right. um, so I've had a great time with that. Yeah, well, you know, I think, um, because, you know, as you were speaking, too, I mean, I think 
you know, there's also that similarity in mind with uh, the sense of, you know, Baker is so resistant to the idea of therapy as, as are many law enforcement personnel and people in general often in society. But you see how resistant he is. But, of course, at that point in the story now, he's, he's somewhat desperate. But he also comes to understand after he's now working with Dr. Lerner, I think he comes to respect her in the sense that I think a part of him realizes that she is in her way a, detec- a detective. So they're both detectives. I mean, she's a mind detective. Um, and I think, you know, she realizes also, obviously, that he has the capacity to put psychological pieces together as well. So it's it's kind of interesting that you get that, you get to see that once they form the therapeutic alliance and are working, kind of the mutual respect and the fact that, you know, they're both playing that role uh, in different ways. So it's interesting because there's that parallel there then that you had mentioned. That's right. Um, I am interested in your choices around Jim Baker. Um, He is really brutal in the first half of the book. Yeah. Uh, And I thought that the sort of way he – I thought he did a good job of bringing us to the end. Uh, uh-huh. but, but it was hard. It was a, a, a lot of ground to cover. I mean, that is to say, he had a long way to go. I mean, right. there is that great scene where she's describing him and he thinks she's describing Mickey. Right, right, <laughs> right. <laughs> um, yeah, you know, I think that... Um, you know, somebody like him, because obviously, ultimately, he he was suffering from PTSD, uh, unwilling to come to terms with the fact that he'd been affected by, um, you know, the shooting and that he'd killed somebody. And you're seeing the aftermath of that, of somebody who's not willing to work through something like that. So, you know, this is, in fact, what happens a lot. Um, with law enforcement personnel who experience a trauma like that uh, is that it it can just continue to sort of spiral downwards where they become more and more violent. uh, They become abusive even with, you know, family members, close people um, that they, you know, isolate, they can't regulate their emotions, the outbursts, the, the, substance use, you know, all of that. So you're seeing him at his his worst, basically, um, at that point. And I think one of the things that was very important to me, too, uh, was to make everything very realistic. So, you know, he he changes so gradually that I think a lot of people don't notice the little subtle changes as they're occurring. Yet if they were to take a point in the book, anywhere later on in the book, and look back – they would have to realize the baker that they knew at the beginning of the book. They could never imagine him, you know, doing something like, you know, worrying about whether, you know, Mickey's safe or, uh, you know, taking care of her or, you know, cutting her some slack for anything or any of the things that go on because I wanted to make sure that, it, you know, we weren't having a, a, you know, Hallmark movie of the week kind of thing where there's, you know, some epiphany suddenly and everything just changes and is wonderful, which is, not real life. So, well, you, you know, have part to worry of the process. About that. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> um, so, yeah, uh, 
you know, it was all very gradual, and obviously it makes sense that once he enters treatment, you know, things do accelerate a lot. Um, but I felt it was very important because I think the, the, power, the power of the ending couldn't have occurred if, if the first part had been truncated or, or condensed in some way or made more palatable. It just wouldn't have had the same effect. Um, so it, it was, it was a very, uh, you know, that type of thing, uh, you know, it was very painstaking in terms of being aware of, you know, what was going on with his character throughout. Um, I, th- I found it tough. I have to tell you at the beginning, but I do like the way that, um, you're able to have two things or more than two, but, you know, really, uh, two very contradictory things going on at the same time in your characters. Oh, uh, thank you. You know, that kind of ambivalence is hard to consistently deal with. And, you know, and you can see the balance shift. Right. You know, gradually. Yeah. yeah. You know, and it, and it was actually interesting because I, I noticed that, um, you know, there are, there are people in, in my book that are faced with ethical dilemmas based on what's going on in the story and things that really Baker, I mean, they pretty much center around Baker's behavior. Um, but it was interesting because really your characters are also dealing with ethical dilemmas in terms of the decisions they made uh, once they felt they had to essentially take the law into their own hands and hatch their own plan to bring about a successful ending to what was going on, uh, you know, with the kidnapping that occurred and and all of that. Um, So, you know, I thought that was fascinating because I think it's important to have things like that because real life is is full of ethical dilemmas and nothing is very clear cut. So I I didn't know whether or not that was something that you were aware of and intentionally, you know, as you did it or Oh, no, it's very conscious. Um, Yeah. And I do think, and I I feel this... it's a theme that runs through all the books, it's both in the therapy where Abe does things, particularly in the last book, that are quite unconventional in order uh-huh. to help his patient. Uh, and it's all, I mean, you as a professional would understand and I think be sympathetic to what he does, but he has to accept her world in ways that are not conventional. And right. uh, he does this and... Uh, in the real world, Corey uh, and Abe have to do things that may be outside the law in order to protect the people that they love. Right. And, and those are hard decisions. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, and I think that, um, you know, even in the very beginning of my book when you, you see the social worker, you know, Miss Gutierrez, struggling uh, still over her decision to, you know, be a part of what was going on and having Baker as the guardian um, because she realized that she would normally never accept him in that role, and yet she felt torn because knowing what was going on uh, for Mickey at Hayden, it seemed the far lesser of two evils. Um, And, you know, social workers and therapists, I mean, face these types of things uh, more often probably than we care to think about, but these are in- incredibly difficult decisions. Um, How did you like the end of Teaser? Did you believe that? I mean, did that work for you? I actually um, did like the fact that 
there were there was an awful lot that went on there because first of all I think it you know Star gets snapped out of her rationalization of what she was doing for example for teaser I think that given how starved she was for love and all the brutality that she'd experienced um, the fact that he cared for her and seemed to love her and everything else she I think rationalized away the fact that she was essentially um, you know herself being part of child sexual abuse but I think that once the culmination of the story occurred you see that she sort of gets snapped out of it and she realizes that you know Corey does in fact know something you know that Corey is in fact a smart woman uh and I think it, it sort of shifts her entire perspective and her t- entire world, really. And I think that Corey also has that empathy for what Star has been put through, understands why Star probably made the choices she did, um, and realizes that it was not something that she did uh, in a fully conscious sense, perhaps, uh, I'll say. But I think that you know it was touching that she let her go with the hope that maybe she'll have a fresh start now that she'll, her eyes will be open and she'll make better choices maybe and hopefully have a different kind of life rather than subjecting her to going into the criminal justice system where the likelihood of her coming out in better shape would probably be pretty low given everything that was had occurred for her. Um, so, well, again, uh, that's another ethical decision. Uh, that she made right that. to not yeah. give yes not to give star up to the authorities but um, I think she that, felt in her heart that that was the right thing. To that's do. one of my favorite moments in the book when she let star go when they let star yeah. go and that is an ethical dilemma. Right. And it's actually a thing that runs through all three books is their relationship with Lou Ballard the policeman and they're always. Uh, doing stuff that he doesn't approve of. <laughs> and, right. Uh, at right. the same time, <laughs> he's always coming back right. to help. <laughs> right, right. Uh, and, you know, that a lot of their thing is kind of trying to protect him, too. Don't let him know about this. He won't yeah. say anything. You know? <laughs> yeah, yeah. And getting him the promotion. Oh, no, that, no, that was at the... I mean, it it gets much worse in the first book. Uh-huh. <laughs> uh, uh, oh, I'm not going to give it away. I hope one day you'll read okay. it. Okay. Um, the um, um. So how has your book been received? I mean, how are you feeling about you know people's response? You know, people. Uh... A lot of people really, really love the book. I think a lot of it, um, and, you know, I think for some people it is very, very difficult to read the brutality that occurs in the beginning. Um, so I think people who continue on, I mean, for some people, and, and of course it depends on one's own temperament and experiences and everything else, that, you know, there are quite a number of people that, um, you know, they just love every aspect of it and have no issues with anything. But for other people, it's difficult because it's not something they would normally um, read about. So it's a little harder for them. But ultimately, they end up feeling like it's been a great experience. So that's been the overwhelming reaction um, that people have loved it and have, 
I guess the other thing that means a lot to me, people often tell me that, well, number one, they didn't want it to end. So despite being a long book, they didn't want it to end, which says a lot. Um, Some people have reread it, which I'm like amazed at. And then, you know, a lot of people have said that the characters stay with them uh, so that, you know, even weeks, months later, they still, once in a while, find themselves thinking about the characters. So, um, you know, that, that has touched me a lot. Yeah, thank you. One of the things that I just want to mention uh, is that I was, uh, I really like the way you use the 70s music throughout oh, the Oh, thank you. <laughs> I, mean, I remember those songs. <laughs> yeah, I and, you know, those were songs that I found to be very powerful and um, meaningful. So, and I, I tried to use them in a way such that, you know, people could still understand um, kind of the feel of it, even if they didn't know the music, they would get a sense from either the title or something I say about it. And, and some places I really wrote pieces to evoke what had been the feeling I got from the song um, so that they would get that sense of, of what the music would have brought to them through what I wrote. So, um, but I think music was such an integral part of the seventies, the sixties and the seventies. It was such an important part of growing up and uh, the whole sense of what was happening in the world. And there was so much emotion and hope and commentary put in music at that time. I think it's different now than it had been then, but it was such an important force that I really want to make sure that it was included. And, um, you know, I guess, you know, I'd I'd been pursuing music at one point myself, uh, hoping to make a career out of it. So music has always meant a tremendous amount to me. So I guess that's the other reason why I chose to put that in there. Well, I was interested in how well you did it. I just... I'm finishing a book, and in this book, there's a lot of reference to old movies, and that's uh-huh. something, of course, which I know a lot about and has a lot of meaning for me. And I realized, and then my kids helped me understand this, that most people wouldn't know what these movies were. I mean, in the very opening sequence, I have the lead character humming a song from Streets of Fire, a movie that... Uh, most people haven't heard of and uh-huh. uh, uh, so we had to change that I had to go through and I had to really find ways to make these movies accessible and in some cases I succeeded and some I didn't but I understand how hard that is to do and I thought you did it very well I mean it's not the same thing it's analogous though. right yeah thank you um, yeah no it, it is it is it is difficult and you know that's you know, that's the thing is to try to see, you know, when you look at it, do I feel like, I, you know, I've added something, that somebody gets a sense of something. Um, it, it's interesting. It's an interesting process to go through because you want to inject that in there. You want to have that reference. So, you know, it, it, is, an interesting, it is an interesting process. And I, I do think that it adds something, too, when you can put those things in there that relate to certain periods of time or things like that because after all we speak that way in real life so many times people now will say oh do you remember that scene in and they'll say something that a tv show because it's so incorporated into our way of life now well and you know it's made more complicated by the fact that 
uh, I'm sure every one of those songs has a whole set of associations for you that are uniquely yours. Right. And that um, you want to find a way to share that with people who don't have those associations for whom the song might have other meaning. And uh, it's, right. it's an interesting process. Yeah. Uh, are you writing another book? You know, I have thoughts. I have thoughts now. I've started to have thoughts about uh, what I want to write next. Um, I think it will be just a very different type of book, so I've just been kind of jotting down little things. Um, so it's it's starting to coalesce a bit. Um, and, you know, I'm curious. I know that I think you're only having the trilogy with the Corey Logan series. Um, are you going to be creating another series, or do you think you're going to be leading, leaning more towards kind of standalone works? Or? Well, I wrote one standalone novel between the first and the second of the Corey Logan, and that was a book uh-huh. called In Velvet that's set in Yellowstone Park. It's a sort of Jurassic Park, Michael Crichton-esque kind of uh, Eco thriller. I don't know quite how to uh, categorize it. Yeah, <laughs> but it starts with unusual animal behavior in a remote corner of the park, and the heroine is a bear biologist. And I loved writing that <laughs> book. Uh, and people have asked me if I would write a sequel to that, and it's it's always felt I, it's set in 1994, and it's always uh-huh. felt hard to do. Uh, the last book I wrote which I'm just finishing now, is a standalone thriller. And again, it's set in, this one is set in Seattle and New York. Uh, uh-huh. But it's an entirely new cast of characters, and this is one that lends itself to a sequel. So I don't know. I'm really trying to figure out what I want to do when this one is done. But right. i got to wrap this up. But, you know, I just, I don't know. I mean, there's all sorts of um, uh, distractions when you know, you're a writer, and not the least of which is you know, sort of marketing your own books, which you obviously have to do. Um, right. But I find that the, I, I want to just keep writing. And you just, just the more you write, it's the opposite of producing. If we, when you produce movies, the more you do it, the worse you get. I mean, it's like <laughs> you burn out. <laughs> you That's don't care funny. as much. <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> you know, it's like when Fr- Fred is there, calls and says, you know, I'm so cold, I'm dancing around in the room to keep warm, you know, it's like, you know, in the middle of the night. <laughs> so you go up there and you figure it out and you work it out and, you know, it's crisis management. And, you know, but after right. a while, there's only so many of those you really want to do. And with writing, it's just the opposite. You get better every time. And yeah. that's been my experience. I mean, you have the satisfaction of, um, you know, somehow being able to get know when you've gotten where you want to go. And so right. I just am eager to write more books, and I'm looking forward to doing that. I mean, I really feel like uh, I've got quite a few more books in me. I just have to work out my time. I mean, that's the single yeah. problem. Yeah. Yeah, but that's excellent. That's so excellent. And it, it seems like you really enjoy the the mystery thriller genre i do um and you know that's partly because that's what i grew up on i mean the very first thing i did when i went to hollywood was uh i called up ross mcdonald the mystery writer uh-huh. and i don't know if you, you know his work but he is sort of 
at the time was the heir to Dashiell Hammett and Raymond Chandler. And, oh, okay. Uh, and he did his only screenplay for me. I mean, so I worked with really? him as a young man, and uh-huh. uh, that was sort of the beginning of a long-standing interest in this kind of genre. But you know, it's like working with Andy Lewis on Clue. You know, the big argument. You know, is Clue a love story or a thriller? Well, the answer is it's both, and that's sort of what right. I try to do. That's what I try right, to do. Right, which I think makes the most interesting type of work uh, to include, you know, a variety of things in there. Um, and, you know, I think both in your book and my book, there are, you know, other themes also going through it, you know, commentary or critiques of society that are, you know, also being put in there, which are meaningful and add, you know, to things. Because um, I noticed, you know, the the whole issue in terms of the leniency uh, and the permissiveness that was going on, you know, with, um, Maisie's parents, especially Verlaine, and then, you know, at the school, Olympic, uh, which is, you know, to the point where it's, it's counter-reality, um, you know, because, for example, it's important for children to have boundaries. It, it helps make them feel safe. It helps build their own ability to set their own boundaries um, and make good choices. And, you know, I did feel like, you know, some – there were parts in there that, you know, you work in, in a sense commenting on, you know, this trend oftentimes of sort of, you know, everything's okay, anything goes. And um, I thought it was a really important point that you made uh, because some of that you see the impact it has, and it's, it's not a positive impact, this kind of laissez-faire, anything goes uh, thing. And, in fact, um, does it Toby uh, Paulson eventually himself recognizes the mess that was created by him not heeding, you know, Corey's warnings about things? That's an important. I'm glad that you are remarking on that. That's an important part of the book. I mean, there's actually three things that I tried to do. I mean, the first one, and they're not. It's not in any particular order, but. Um, my books are character-driven, as are is yours. Uh-huh. You know where I pay a lot right. of attention to who the people are, and so that that really makes it different than a lot of conventional thrillers. I mean, right. the characters yes. drive what happens, and right. uh, the relationships are very important. The second really is the thriller aspect, which is you know the, a story that grabs you and you just want to stay with it. But the third is putting it in some sort of context uh, in terms of what you're feeling about the particular world you're writing about. And this was a Uh time when I had, you know, kids in private schools and I felt like they were sort of glorifying a lot of things that they should have looked at a little harder and idealizing. And uh, Uh uh-huh. I, you know, I think that comes through in the book. Yeah, and I and I think it's such an important point. Um, I think a, a lot of what goes on today is, you know, there is that tendency in in many areas to just, you know, look at every everything's okay, you know, no judgments on anything, and it's really not a healthy thing to not have any critical look at things and to just accept everything as being okay because. Um, 
it's not. And, right. you know, you suffer the consequences of ignoring the problems. And that's a big theme in, in, in everything that I write, the difference between people's real needs and their perceived needs. I mean, that there is uh-huh. a kind of, and you as a therapist, of course, understand this, you know, there is a kind of, what Abe and Corey do is focus on people's real needs. You know, they're able uh-huh. to understand that, uh, I mean, Macy could be in real danger because it's it's maybe has to do with things that she needs that she thinks she can get in this world that aren't very realistic. Right. And, um, uh, anyway, I'm not articulating this very well, but it's it runs, you know, in the very first book, Abe's mother is this very um, prominent politically influential and in national politics, uh, you know, powerful and articulate woman who is being, who, who seems to be in this ideal relationship with the man who's running for state attorney general. And he's a labor lawyer and very polished and charming and, um, you know, they look like an ideal couple and Abe uh-huh. and Corey look like a ridiculous couple. I mean, it's right, like, right. And it, it, the reality is uh, the man that Jesse, Abe's mom, thinks she's in love with is the man who framed Corey and sent her to prison and is trying to kill her. And wow. so things aren't anything like they seem. The, the re- reality right. is quite different from perceived reality. Right. And I think that's what we're talking about. I mean, I think that's what you're Yes, exactly. About. Yes. And, you know, theoretical things versus real things and yeah. how things play out in the real world versus in one's head. Well, and that's such an important part of your book is being able to, for these two people to get what's real with each other in terms of how they feel. Right. And it's hard earned, you know, it's really something that um, makes for the best relationships. Yeah. Well, this was fun. Yes, I agree. It was great. (laughs) My name's Bert Weisbord, and I've really enjoyed talking with Randy Mason about her exciting first novel, Falling Back to One, and about Teaser. And I'm hoping we can continue the conversation. Sounds great to me. Thank you so much.